let me start by saying that I feel like this game doesn't really suit Rumination format all that well. I think this is a game better suited to something like a lore run. There's too many little details to showcase, and too many little different branches that things can take. There's a lot of choice in this game, in a good way, but it also means this game has a lot of replay value, which is a damn shame because the game is so huge that replaying it is unlikely. In fact, I'd be surprised if I ever have time to replay this game. Uh, not because of choice, but just because of the size of the thing. Larian themselves, the studios that made this game, has admitted several times that they aren't really big on continuity, and good god does it show. For those of you not aware, the Divinity series is actually several games long, although it only really started getting popular acclaim with this particular game. Uh, they've been doing stuff for a while. I've actually covered one of their games before as a rumination, Dragon Knight specifically. And that game has basically no real connection to this one. And even the first Divinity Original Sin basically has no real connection to this one. This game is actually before, I believe, Divinity 2. And you'd think, well, hey, this sets up events of that game, right? Except it kind of doesn't. <laughs> this is especially egregious because this game has multiple endings which really significantly alter the entire setting. So, you know, that's fun. It's also kind of frustrating. So is my point being, I'm going to be kind of ignoring the other games in the franchise when it comes to you know, trying to discuss the lore of this one because they don't really coincide. Okay? Let's <laughs> just, just get that out of the way. Um, I also want to mention that nobody really expected this game to sell as well as it did. This is basically a Star Wars effect right here, which is a phrase I don't use all that often. It's when something succeeds which probably shouldn't have, but it succeeds way more than anyone expected, like the original Star Wars, A New Hope. And I, that's great. I think this game deserves that cre credit and that praise. In fact, I recommend you go pick it out and play it because it's a really good game. And I'm going to try and explain why. This is a modern take on a classical foundation, something that's been gaining a lot of traction in the last several years in game design. What I mean by that, some developers, especially in the last 10 years, seemed to think that all they had to do was make an older game, you know, a game in the style of games made in the 90s, and then win. But some of the better examples of this are when they take the same concepts as all those, are, those older games, but with the advantages of time and gaming development philosophy and new mechanics and new technology, they just do it better. Same core concept, but much more modern in its execution. And those are the kind of games that really tend to work for me. Um, there's several examples of this. Probably the most obvious one for me would be Shovel Knight, but there are several other uh, examples. I'm sure you guys can come up with some as well. This one definitely qualifies for me. I want to discuss really quick, though, why this game works for me and several others don't. Because one of the questions that was posited is, and this is actually a direct question that was asked as far as this rumination request, uh, you know, paraphrasing so lore, you don't really care for playing the old fallouts, and you don't really enjoy playing Pillars of Eternity or Tyranny or Baldur's Gate or anything like that, so why do you enjoy the DOS series so much, Divinity Original Sin series so much? And it's actually kind of hard to explain. So... For those of you not aware, the functionality of the game is turn-based, AP-based, uh, similar to Shadowrun and other couple of games I have already covered. I'm not sure when they're going live relative to this video. And the idea is, you know, okay, it's your turn in the, in the order of list. You have X amount of AP to take actions. This includes movement. And once you have done so, it moves down to the next turn in the list. Now, that's a fairly basic system. That's not what makes me enjoy this game so much. It's... <sighs> 
Well, it's something I've been talking about a lot lately. Seriously, this just keeps coming up. In fact, this has even started creeping into my Star Trek videos on Mondays and Tuesdays. An idea by itself is just an idea. I, I have argued for years, and, and my opinion on this has been codified this year, uh, or strengthened this year, that there's no such thing as a good game mechanic. There is a good implementation of a game mechanic. But there's no such thing as, if you do this in your game, it's an automatic win. It's if a turn-based game, if it's a real-time strategy game, if it's a Metroidvania, if it has a new game plus, if it uses leveling systems. You know, these kind of mechanics can be good things, but you have to design the game around that mechanic and design it in a way so that it's executed well. And that's what DOS and DOS 2 do for me. And I mentioned the first game as well. I've played through the first game about one and a half times because of restarts uh, with a friend of mine. And all I'm going to say about Divinity Riddleson 1 is that it was a very fun game that had a very boring story. Not an actively bad story, but it just, there wasn't really much there. It was just kind of like, well, and here's our next boss, right? And here's our next dungeon. Oh, and you're the bad guy because you're leading me on. Oh, you're secretly not the bad guy. Okay. Oh, and there's a dragon, right? It was just kind of there. And I have to admit also the relentless attempts at humor in the first game also kind of get a little bit old after a while. But the gameplay, I really enjoyed. Now take everything about that and then magnify it by 11 and you've basically got this game. Because we've got the turn-based AP thing, we have many, many, many different spells, abilities, and things that you can do, some of which are plot-based, some of which are class-based, or actually class, there's really no classes in this game, some of which are skill-based. You can go buy spells, you can learn new abilities, um, there are certain quest interactions you can do to, to gain new, new functionality, and all of this gives you lots and lots of options in combat. And that's just at the start. That if, if the entire game, if that's all there was, that wouldn't make it good. Because you could have a blank sheet of paper with a tile grid on it and have that, and that wouldn't be enjoyable. But the terrain matters. The terrain is a significant part of the combat and the interactions. And there's uh, tears, and there's climbing, and there's thorns, and there's, you know, uh, bush, and, and there's fire. There's stuff that can be on the ground. I don't know. I, this isn't really terrain, but it's basically a status effect for the terrain, which I know sounds weird. But, you know, you can have fire on the ground, or oil, or death fog, or poison, or all sorts of stuff like that. Lava, of course, which will just instantly kill you. Um, and that will matter, and you can affect that stuff. You can get rid of fire. You can add a wet effect. You can remove poison. You can explode poison. You know, all sorts of stuff like that that gives you the option to change the status effects of the terrain. And then on top of that, you have um, actual, like, interactables that you can in, you know, do stuff with, which are littered here and there, and are clearly have been clearly designed to be something you're supposed to do in the region you're in, like a ballista, or a barrels that you can throw at someone, or knocking over a statue, or whatever. And that is in addition to the number of, uh, the ability to literally pick up things, which will enable you to break things, or add status effects, or change terrain, and then use them later on. One of the most obvious and amusing things that lots of people tend to mention is the fact that you can just pick up a barrel of death fog very early in the game, and use that very strategically, and in so doing, kill things very quickly, because death fog is death fog. 
It's hard to understate how many options you have in combat. The number of methods by which you can make your way through any given encounter are huge. And, and this is important, the game doesn't make the mistake a lot of other games I know have. Now, I still to this day have never gotten a chance to sit down and play Wasteland 2, the Director's Edition, which supposedly fixed several of my issues with Wasteland 2. But Wasteland 2 had the problem of way too much padding because of way too much trash. Each fight, each encounter was an interesting, engaging encounter, but there were so many of them that it got dull. This game tends to, I shouldn't say tends to, in my experience, completely avoids that. There are certainly random encounters in the overworld, but they're very, they're almost non-existent. Almost every encounter you run into is something that's specifically designed, manually crafted, and spread out in a sufficient way that you don't spend a huge amount of time in combat. So it never, it never gets old, in other words. And that's another aspect of executing the mechanic properly. So basically, it hits every nail on the head, is what I'm trying to say. It also, of course, the character customization is great. Um, you can, of course, change your race, your appearance, your skills, your talents, and your tags, which is probably one of my favorite aspects of the game. Now, tags are mostly lore, story, role-playing stuff, like the villain tag. But tags are basically ways the game itself uses in order to mark and track who and what you are and who and what you've done. Um, and it's just a way for you to see that. Examples of tags include your race, your uh, gender, what kind of events you've done, or how you concluded quests. It's an easy and simple way for you to be aware of what you are and what you've done, and for the game to be able to acknowledge that and change things accordingly. I mentioned earlier choice. There is an, a surprisingly large amount of different options and methods by which you can go through the various quests and quest arcs in this game. For the most part, you're all, always still going to be doing you know, the main plot, and even someone who is a horrifically evil psychopath or sociopath is someone who still would benefit from doing the main plot, and ergo, it would make sense if you did it, but you are allowed to choose that. You are not restricted to being a good guy, a bad guy, or anything in between. There is a huge amount of options for role-playing, kind of similar to another game I praise many times, Dragon Age Origins. If it's not obvious from all of my praise... Oh, I'm sorry, actually, hang on. One more thing you can customize is your origin. They have these different origins set up. Uh, let's see. Red Prince, Losa, Beast, Sabeel, Afan, and Fane. And you can choose from one of those for your own character... Or, like, you can basically make a custom character and choose an origin, or you can choose one of the pre-existing characters, or you can choose a pre-existing character and customize them. And if you get any of the pre-existing characters as party members, you can customize them again. In fact, it's one of the first things you have in dialogue as you're recruiting them. I'm used to being a rogue, but you can do such and such with me, right? And that's good, and I love that. I love the fact that they managed to weave in backstory to customizable characters, which not many games actually pull that off. If it's not obvious, I really, really like this game. Um, this game is actually a challenge, in my opinion, for one of my favorite Western RPGs of all time, right up there with Oblivion and you know, Dragon Age Origins. I'm not sure I could come up with another serious contender, at least at the absolute upper tier. I mean, obviously there's plenty of Western RPGs that I really enjoy. You know, Planescape Torment, Neverwinter Nights with the expansions, etc. But, whew, this is some awesome stuff. Um... There's got to be some flaws with the game, right? Well, yes. The endings kind of suck. <laughs> I've looked up all of the endings, and all of them 
aren't really that interesting, but more to the point, all of them are very threadbare. So you choose what you're going to do, and, and, and then you have the final battle thing, and then there's a few lines of dialogue, and then a bit of narration, and then it's done. It feels like they were like, all right, let's just get this over with. And again, remember, these people, Larry and Studios, did not really expect this to be some big mega-selling hit that it was. <laughs> There's actually this great interview, which if you ever have time, I recommend you look into, where they're, they're like, so, yeah, we expected to have, like, uh, such and such number of sales total, and they had exceeded that by o- over half and again when that interview was being said, which was not that long after the game came out. It sold very well. I really hope they continue with this and do something good with this in the future. Especially with Malady. I mean, you can't tell me Malady isn't just expansion material or, you know, sequel material, right? I mean, come on. Anyways, uh, let's talk about some characters really quick. So I'm going to talk about the origin characters uh, in brief here. Uh, for anybody curious, the party I ended up going with was Sabeel, Red Prince, Fane, and uh, Beast. Those were my, those was my four. I have to admit, I was a little torn, because I did like uh, Losa, but I didn't like Ifan, not really. Like, Ifan, I'll talk about him first, because he is by far the most typical character of this bunch. And, he, I mean, I know, I know, this is this is 2017 when this game came out, and every character type has been done, right? There's nothing new under the sun, and I am a firm believer in the idea that you don't have to be new in order to be interesting, because there is no such thing as new. So... I'm with it. But Ifan is a little bit too typical for me. In fact, the thing I kept thinking when I was looking into him and researching him is, well, this is just Cecil. <laughs> right? I mean, he, he was the, the, the noble warrior who worked for Lucian and then was tricked into accidentally setting off this death fog bomb and killing the elves and holy crap, and I've lost all faith in myself. I must join another order. And the only difference between him and Cecil, I should say the only difference. The major difference is because that he decides to become an assassin rather than Cecil who became a paladin, but you get the point. He's, he's just, I didn't find a lot to say about him. I didn't find a lot interesting about him, except for the fact that he is probably one of the best characters to shine an insight into the true nature of the, uh, let's call it the interaction with the deities in this setting. I don't know what, I don't know what proper phrase to use that. We'll talk more about that later, but he is probably one of the better characters to help you understand and learn more about what the hell's actually going on in this game. Which I suppose brings me to Fane. Now, I'd like to save Fane for last, because he's he was probably one of the most interesting characters for me, and of course was written by Avalon, so of course he was. But I do also have to admit that Fane is very Avalon. Like, he's, he's so typically an Avalon character. Um, he's the fish out of water. In fact, he's actually legitimately enjoyable. He made me laugh many times how much he would find things just, oh my god, this is... He's so completely unaware of how the world works, and he just can't possibly envision uh, any level... (sighs) I'm saying this wrong. He was cute, okay? (laughs) I'm going to stop dancing around it. He was really cute in how much he found small little joys in his, his studies. And that makes sense to me, because Fane is someone who, to me, doesn't really have a strong sense of, let's call it empathy... He's not, in fact, it, it could be argued that Fane is actually a sociopath, a high-functioning sociopath, or whatever you want to call that. Someone who really just does not get or care about others. His interactions with his daughter are examples of that enough. But 
he does care very much about information and concepts, new things, new ideas. There's a reason he was one, he was a researcher, and there's a reason the whole veil void thing was something he was pursuing. He obviously regrets that, but not because of the research itself, just because of the consequences of it. So he always struck me as someone who that's the one thing he cares about, and that's the one thing he pursues. He also uh, basically starts off the game and arguably the setting, again, trying to ignore the other games in this franchise, because at least two of them contradict this. But everything he did... <sighs> Christ, let's, stay, let's save that for a bit. Let's save the setting stuff for a bit. So he started the dominoes. And I have to say, if any of you have not played this game, I highly, highly recommend you uh, hit pause and go play the game right now. It's a really good game. Wait for a Steam sale, if nothing else. But if you do play the game, play as Fane. Or use Fane as your origin. I know that's going to suck because he's an undead type and they have different rules in how they uh, interact with different things like poison and death and healing and all that fun stuff. But if you play as a Fane origin, you get so much more direct plot-relevant information than anyone else does. I'm going to take an aside here to mention something that I both like and dislike about this game. If you have a party of, oh, I don't know, Sabeel, Beast, Fane, and... Uh, uh, the Red Prince, sorry, because my brain dies there for a second. You, the person you are not, I was actually Sabeel specifically, the person you are not will still have the same cutscenes, you just won't see them and you won't get a choice in them. They will just play out in the typical manner, and you might get some information afterwards about what happened, but you won't have the first-person perspective. Now, I like that because that kind of makes sense, and it's, it's, it's showcasing the idea that you are actually playing your character, not your party. And thus, you aren't aware of everything your party does. You're aware of everything you do, and you can observe what they're doing, right? And in some cases, you can do a little skill check to, to listen in a little bit on what's going on to get more information. And that's neat. The problem is, it does mean you kind of get locked out of some significant character developments and story development because you're not the person in the cutscene, so to speak. And again, those cutscenes will always go a default way if you're not the person interacting with them. This is why I recommend you play as Fane, because you will get far more information for, uh, as Fane than you will as anyone else. And that's unfortunate, but it's true. But let's, let's move on to the next character. Let's talk about Red Prince. Now, the Red Prince is probably one of the more interesting characters to me overall, because he comes across as your completely stereotypical, snooty, uh, spoiled, aristocratic brat. And in typical WRPG fashion, more layers are revealed to him over time to showcase why he acts that way. Now, he is a prat, and I kind of like the fact that he stays a prat, that he is actually an aristocratic snob, and no, the game makes no effort to whitewash that. But he is a very understandable perspective, given everything he's been through. The the exile is certainly a part of that. But um, the whole reason he became exiled was because he was simply lonely and lacking in challenge. And I think those two things best define his character arc in a nutshell. He wants very much to have friends, to have comrades who are equals, who are people he can respect, who are people he legitimately enjoys being around and enjoy him being around him. He will still be an aristocratic snob, but he can be an aristocratic snob who is not a snob to you because you are worthy of his notice. It's a little layer of additional uh, dimension that, that most of his archetypes usually don't have in fiction. 
As an aside, of course, there's also the challenge part of things. Now, the Red Prince, I, of course, I took it. He was basically my main tank, uh, him and Beast. But the Red Prince is the kind of guy who... He, he himself says, he says something, uh, I, I should have written it down. His line, if you discuss his backstory about, you know, always wanting to reach the horizon rather than merely perceiving it. The idea of wanting to actually accomplish, to do. He believes he has this great destiny, and he's actually right. I'll talk about that in a second. And he's got this whole, you know, I am the great and powerful Red Prince, and yet he doesn't do anything. He was just locked in a hole, basically. A very nice hole with, with very nice recruitments. But he wanted to accomplish. Again, because of that ego I mentioned earlier. It keeps going back to that aristocratic snob thing. But he wanted to prove that he was that. He wanted to show that he was worthy of all this praise that he heaps upon himself. It's a nice little take on the character. But I want to talk about Sada. Um, which I, I don't know, you know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's been a long time since I've actually done his character quest, and I've been working on Star Trek stuff all over the place, so forgive me if I'm mispronouncing it, but it's the other uh, lizard. It's the other one who they want, they, you know, they are destined to get together. Now, given the way this setting works, um, within this game, of course, ignoring the other games, there is obviously this whole implication of destiny and fate and yet one of the things I can't help but notice is that in every single case where there is some great destiny or some great fate you the player have the option to say screw destiny and not have it conclude every single time we'll be talking about that again when we get to uh Sabeel. So I suppose what I'm trying to say is that I don't believe there actually is some great destiny between him and Sada. What I actually think happened, and this is just my opinion, and I admit I'm a little biased in thinking this because I like this idea, is I think what happened was a mathematical improbability. Something that by totally random, completely unlikely chance, two lizards were both born who happened to be Let's call it connected, because there is an actual connection between uh, thought, soul, and source within this setting. And to put it into such terms, their frequency was exactly matched, right? And as a consequence, they start having these dreams with each other, and they start thinking about each other, and they start building up this whole thing. Oh my god, it is this great destiny. And I mention this because... I don't actually think they're going to bring back the dragons. I don't think that's actually where this is going. That's just my opinion. And I know that's kind of contradicted by a few things. But I like the idea more that these two people are going to start maybe their own little subspecies, but not really bringing back the dragons the way they used to be. Because, well, because then we have to start talking about Dragon Knight and the way the dragons used to be in this setting where they were really, really, really high-tier things. Which, actually, this is a great segue into Losa. Uh, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly, because she herself kind of varies in how she pronounces it. Losa, uh, Losa's interesting. So Losa is someone who happens to be a natural medium. Lots and lots of spirits or elemental creatures or whatever have the ability to just speak through her. Now, again, mathematical improbability is, is basically the reason for why she is this. She just happens to be born with what is effectively a defect in her nature, which allows her to be a natural channel for things that are not of the tangible realm, right? Thing is, demons in this setting are ridiculously high-tier. Now, there's, of course, a tiered system to this, but the high-tier demons are on the continent-moving level of power. And this is actually something that I, keep, I hate to keep referencing Dragon Knight, but is actually mentioned back in Dragon Knight. Spoilers alert, 
really quick. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers for Dragon Knight. Spoilers. The big airship that is pretty much the main method by which you are able to accomplish your war back in Dragon Knight is powered by a demon. Just one. <laughs> and he has the ability to make things a whole lot better or a whole lot worse, depending on how you go through that campaign. Anyways, getting back to the present. So the Doctor, or Adramalek, if, Adramal, Adramalek, if you prefer, is met, is properly emphasized as being someone who is very, very high tier. Now there are lesser demons like the Succubus and the Red Dra uh, Princess story, Red Dragon story, listen to me. Uh, but I like that idea that there's not that many real demons, the really big high tier stuff. They're basically demon princes, uh, uh, to use an example from another setting, like Faerun. But the Doctor is very terrifying, very high tier, and he's actually playing to win. His entire goal is basically to try and use Losa as a method in order to get to the divine power, in order to become one of the new divines, which would be a really bad thing for everyone involved. My only regret with all of this, I mean, you can go after the Doctor, and you have to do things pretty specifically in order to get a good outcome out of all that, but... The only thing I regret is that Losa herself is just not that interesting of a character to talk about outside of the presence of the Doctor, outside of Adramalik, because she's just... She's someone who has to deal with a really unpleasant and horrible thing. She has had this, let's call it what it is, crippled, uh, crippled status all of her life. It's not a physical ailment, it is a mental ailment, and this has been a problem she's had to deal with, and her method of... Uh, acclimating to this problem. Her method of trying to deal with it has been to be this kind of light-hearted goofball who snarks and makes fun and just tries to see the better side of things. She's actually probably one of the most overall positive and I would dare say good characters that you can actually recruit into your party. And it's a damn shame because the, the most good person you can recruit into your party is possessed by one of the most horribly evil demons in the entire setting. <sighs> Anyways... <clears throat> Which I suppose is a good time to shift over to Beast. Now, I admit that Beast is the kind of person that I would not get along with in real life. But I did find him interesting in a fictional sense. Because, first of all, Beast is an excellent insight on in what's going on with the Dwarven politics right now. Although I actually love the fact that when you get there, things are far more nuanced and complex than he portrayed. Because he himself is an extremely un you know, unreliable source of this. I mean, that just makes sense to me. However, the thing I like about Beast from a fictional sense is that, well, I, I guess this goes back to what I was mentioning about the Red Prince. He has his own personality, which is rude, crude, childish. He is a very immature person in terms of his mentality, his approach, his personality, etc., but that does not mean he doesn't have other character traits. He does legitimately care about other people. He does actually want to try to help the Dwarven situation. He does feel like he needs to resolve what's going on with the Queen. He does actually, you know, etc., etc., etc. There is more to him than just, ha <laughs> fart joke, right? But he still has that. It's... I know this sounds so strange, but I like the fact that his character trait remains true the whole way through. Um, apparently, and I have to say it this way, I didn't actually get this, uh, you can actually get him back into the court as one of the endings, and if you do, then he is kicked right back out of the court because he is just too immature of a person to be fitting in that type of society. In fact, if I might be so bold, Beast is the kind of person who wouldn't fit in most society. 
at, at most levels, never mind actual royalty, it's no wonder he went into piracy because he is a smart person and he does care and he is charismatic. So you slot him into the only type of society he can fit in and then he naturally rises to the top of that society. Anyways, uh, I suppose this is a good time to talk about Seville, which is the last character I have, the last of the main characters I have to talk about. Now, Seville is... Yeah, I feel like I've said this before. Seville is a cold-blooded and ruthless uh, killer. No, no judgment, I suppose. But the point is, this is not someone who... Oh, I lament the fact that I had to kill people. For... No, she's totally cool with it. What? I like killing. It's fun. I'm really good at it. <laughs> this is a very dark setting if you really sit back and think about it. But she has a really big thing about being forced to do anything, up to and including the actual elements of slavery. Now, that makes sense since she herself was a slave for so long, and that is pretty much her entire character arc is dealing with that particular mark and problem. But I mention that because of the mother tree. Now, the mother tree is a very interesting side quest to me because it is a great example of a side quest that is indicative of the storytelling style of Divinity Original Sin 2. If you just walk into it and don't go do side quests and don't do your research and don't read the side novels and don't talk to NPCs, you can just do it face value. There's this mother tree. The mother tree is one of the core elements of the elven society, and you are destined to become the next mother tree as Sabeel. Sabeel is destined to become the next mother tree, and so she can accept this and become her roots, or she, or, or she can reject this. And it's all straight and on the face. However, if you go digging a little bit, you start to learn a little bit more about what's going on. And again, this, this is true for all of them. Forgive me for not really going over all of them, but I found the mother tree one to be the most interesting example, because... Well, I don't know why, because it was interesting to me. Because the Mother Tree is itself another manipulating, scheming bastard. In fact, basically all of the major power sources in this game, uh, all the seven, uh, Thane, arguably the God King, Bracchus, da Dallas, Lucian, the Mother Tree, uh, the Doctor, I feel like I'm missing a few here. Every single one of these characters is all after the same thing. They all want the divinity. They all want the power of the source and what that actually means. For, for their own purposes and ends. But I mention that because that makes the Mother Tree neither good nor bad. It just makes her another player on the board. And that, in my opinion, changes the dynamic significantly. Because the whole time you're talking with the Mother Tree, she portrays this as if, I am the Mother Tree, and this is destiny and fate. As if there's some grand scheme at point. If, this, if there's some cosmic plan. But there isn't. As I said before, there really is no destiny. There really is no fate in this game or in this setting. Just higher beings who want you to think that so you will do what they want. And so the Mother Tree just wants this divinity thing and is trying to use Sabeel to get to that. So saying no to the Mother Tree and screwing the thing over makes perfect sense when you're aware of all the consequences. Now you have to kill some elves for that, but whatever. That's their fault. They attacked us. <laughs> But see, the other interesting thing, of course, is even if you don't know the backstory and side story, it is still logical in character for Zabil to say no to the tree because the tree, even on the surface level, is still another form of slavery. Because, well, slavery is the wrong word, of being forced to do something. Because that's what destiny means, isn't it? Being forced to do something. I suppose now is the time when we really talk about the nature of this setting because... 
Wow. Like, it takes a lot to look at things like Baracus Rex and the God King, and for me to say that the Seven still challenge them in terms of sheer evilness. I'm dead serious. Holy crap. I, I cannot actually believe. So, I want you to picture something, okay? There's a provable known afterlife in this setting. And I want you to picture that you are worshipping Bob over there. I'm not going to bother to name them because they don't deserve it. So you, you exist in this setting, and you worship Bob, and you've spent your whole life worshipping Bob, and when you finally die and you open your eyes, and you're in the afterlife, and ah, at last, now I can see my friends and my family, no one's there. And you're there's probably this moment of confusion and uncertainty, and then your Bob is like, aha! And then Bob consumes your source, which eradicates you, cessates you. Source vampirism, it's worth noting, is treated as one of the most horrible things possible. I'm not sure why, if I'm being blunt. Like, I can't remember the example, but there's this one spirit in the graveyard area, which was like, oh, I suffer, oh, it's so horrible, please end my suffering. And I'm like, okay. And so I source vampire it, and he's like, no, no, wait, no, no. And he, he treats it like it's worse, as, as if being cessated is actually worse than eternal torment. I, I don't understand that. Um, <laughs> but that's how source vampirism is portrayed. Now, this is still speculation, so I'm not actually sure, is the idea of true cessation. As in, no death, no afterlife, no nothing. You are gone completely and utterly. And that's the whole point of it. So, getting back to that, that's what the seven do. They encourage these people to worship them and live their lives and grow. And they'll interact here and there, and they'll do things here and there. But the whole point is that they want them to keep be, you know, growing fat so they can eat them. All of these people are quite literally cattle. To the, to the gods, and I really got to put that in quote-unquote, because they're not actually gods in any significant source. They're just particularly powerful source vampires. <laughs> I mean, what the hell? <laughs> and that's the, big, that's the big plot twist, by the way. That, that's the big plot twist, is that everyone in the world pretty much exists just to feed them. And that's the purpose of all life, is to feed these gods. And when I see feed, remember, cessation eradication of all that you are. So that leads to the idea that, well, if, for all of the, obviously giving up and becoming one of these divines is out of the question. And anything that accepts the divines is out of the question. Getting rid of the source or spreading the source everywhere, in my opinion, are the only two acceptable outcomes. Both of them have their downsides. Uh, getting rid of source means all of the sorcerers in the world basically revert to husks, just like in the beginning of the game. Uh, putting source everywhere leads to problems down the line, because now source is everywhere. So the canonical ending is probably the one where you just eradicate source, especially since there's a game set pretty much right after this, but whatever. But let's talk about kind of the nature of why this all came to be. because, And I'm going to talk about this in a weird order here, so please forgive me. I mentioned the endings kind of suck. The last boss kind of sucks, too. Because you get to there and it's like, oh my god, it was Bracus Rex the whole time. I'm very surprised by this. Bracus Rex, for those of you not familiar with the setting, is someone who was actually mentioned before in this franchise, back in Divinity Originals 1. And I don't know if he's referenced in any of the other games. But he was someone who was trying to become a divine. He was a sorcerer who was... Really, really smart and really, really powerful. He was basically the Voldemort of the setting, and except actually smart. And he, uh, 
he's really, really horrible. He literally ate children. I mean, I don't know where else to go from that. You encounter so many examples of how depraved and evil he is throughout the course of the work. He is actually kind of cartoonishly evil, to the point where it's hard to take him seriously. But getting back to my point, his overall goal is, of course, divinity. He wants to ascend and become the new divine, the singular new divine. Now, that's actually relevant. Because Bracchus is a failed divine. He actually did not succeed at his quest to become a divine. Now, Lucian, he succeeded, but he also is kind of on his way out the door, so to speak. He is no longer really an acceptable divine option, especially given how he's portrayed in this game, which is actually a retcon, but let's just not even get into that. And you, the main character, are someone who is going to be the divine. Now, this is obvious, and I almost hate to comment on this, but it makes sense that these three principal players would be here for the final battle. Lucian, Bracchus Rex, and you. The one weird exception is the Kraken. Now, the Kraken kind of fits, too, if we consider the God King in all of this, because the God King is the Void Divine. Thus, we have the quadrology, the, 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 the four corners of, of this encounter and the final battle all kind of make sense if you line it up in that manner. The only thing is, why are we fighting the Kraken? Like, I get that it was the thing at the beginning with the ship, but why are we fighting the Kraken? Like, why is that the representative of the Void? That actually kind of irritates me. Like, I would have much rather fought the God King himself or something a little more avatarish of him that isn't a Kraken. I get that the Kraken is his avatar. I get that. I understand. <laughs> but let, let's talk about what I meant about the, the Void God King. So, uh, as, as is the nature here, there's the Void and then there's the Source. Now, based on evidence, we could speculate that Source actually existed before Fane's research and discovery. However, what Fane did was puncture a hole in the veil, which led to an overwhelming amount of Source, far more than there was before, and the Void. Now, the Eternals, which was Fane's people, they ended up, you know, and they're locked away into the void, and they lose their, 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 their ownership and rule over the lands. Okay, I'm with that so far. And then the Seven get a hold of the Source, and they basically, to, to put this into simple terms, each one of them takes one-seventh of the Source. Okay? So each one of them... I, I, this is why I say mentioned earlier that, that calling them gods is kind of not an accurate description because each one of them was a person who was a sorcerer who used who became a very high powerful source vampire by divvying up an actual portion of the whole ownership of source. Now the consequence of that is the hunger thing, which I've already mentioned the the fact that they have to keep eating, and thus this is why they came up with this idea of encouraging people to live and grow so they can eat them. Okay, but what the hell happened with the God King, the leader of the Eternals? Uh, God, I don't even remember if they ever mentioned his name. You know, Fane's boss. He went over into the Void, and he didn't have a bunch of people divvying up the Void with him. It was just him. In other words, he is, roughly, seven times stronger than each of the Divines. Make sense? Now, we do know a little bit about how the Void operates a little differently than the Source. And it's the fairly obvious thing. Source is uh, expultive, whereas void is reductive. Or, excuse me, additive. It's not expultive. That's not even a word. Source is additive, whereas void is reductive. And we know that void tends to involve things like cold and chill, which itself is the removal of heat, and therefore adds to the reductive thing I mentioned earlier. Whether the void is actually stronger than the source or not, 
I don't actually think that's true. Several people in game mention several times the void is super strong and much stronger than source and sorcerers are nothing compared to void zen. I don't buy that. I don't actually buy that for a second. I think it's just the fact that the Void is a little more focused, and most people aren't really prepared for what it is. Now, the Void is obviously becoming more and more of a problem lately because of the events of the game, because of Brackus's manipulations, because of Dallas's manipulations, and because of uh, everything the Void, the God King himself is doing. It does irritate me a little bit that the God King is probably one of the most single important characters in the entire game, who we talk to constantly. Every time we hear a void sent talking, that's him that we're talking to. And yet we never really have a direct confrontation with him, either in terms of dialogue or in terms of combat, unless we decide to allow him to take divinity, in which case he claims divinity and the world becomes the most horrible thing ever. <laughs> Seriously, that is definitively a bad ending if I ever heard of one. Good God. Um, but I do have an interesting question about this. So... We've got the void, we've got the source, we've got the proper divvying up of things. It does, as in a quick aside, it amuses the hell out of me that the Seven can't properly unify against him because it is my theory that if the Seven were to properly unify, they could actually beat the God King, or at least match him. Maybe that's what they've been doing up until now? I don't know. But anyways, <laughs> so... Um, do you think the Eternals were always this bad? Fane seems to be a relatively decent person. Yeah, I mentioned sociopathic earlier and a lack of empathy, but there's not really a lot of and then I will eat babies in the way Fane is, right? But the God King and the way he talks, he's really, really evil. And don't forget Fane's daughter, who wasn't in the void, is also pretty evil. That's Dallas, if I didn't make that clear earlier. She is also fairly evil. And there seems to be a recurring trend amongst the Eternals that they are way too arrogant. In fact, the Eternals are basically the elves of this setting. I know there's elves in this setting, but what I mean is they are the Tolkien-esque elves. You know, they're ancient, and they're way stronger and way smarter and way more superior and smug than everyone else involved. Yes, I know not every Lord of the Rings elf was smug and, and uppity, but you know what I mean, the stereotype of elves. Uh, that's pretty much what the Eternals function as. And I love that there's a great bit where you can actually provoke uh, Brachus into kind of revealing the fact that he's not as under control as she thinks he is. It's a nice little touch, because only only someone like an Eternal would actually think they could control someone like Brachus Rex. That's just fantastic. But anyways, given the insight, I think the Eternals were always this bad, is what I'm trying to say. I don't think the Void actually corrupted the God King or whoever else is out there. I think he really was just always this much of a horrible person. And then he got sucked away in the void, which obviously pissed him off, and now he wants to come back home. Side note, do you think there are any other... Oh, God. Ugh. Do you think there's any other Eternals that are still sentient or sapient over in the void? Now, I ask that. We have no real sign of that, other than, other than the bad ending where he mentions that all shall be our food. That's about all, he, all we get for that. But we always interact with him. The only other Eternals we interact with are the two that were sealed, and as such, were not in the Void, Dallas and Fane. I mention this because I always got the weird impression that the Void King, who, remember, has the same general problem as the, the Seven, needs to keep eating stuff, right? Now, we know he mostly does this here. He'll make pacts with people, and he can bring them back. He, he can Lich King it up a bit, you know, res them as much as he needs to, or eat them at will. 
But I always liked the idea that he slowly ate or pacted with his own people and then ate until he's actually the only eternal left, at least in terms of an individual entity. That there might be thousands or millions or billions of eternals over there in the void, but all of them are literally just extensions of his will at this point in time. Something about that just appeals to me, especially given the way they portray the character. It would be nice if they were actually doing anything with him in the future, but I suppose that depends on if we get an expansion for this. At this point, I really don't know what they're going to do next. I actually went looking into this as part of my research for this rumination to find out what their next plans were, because DOS 2 came out last year. There's been no hints of expansion, DLC, or sequel. You can't tell me they're not working on something. I mean, even if Divinity Original Sin 2 didn't sell like crazy like it did, Larian Studios, Studios has been consistently developing for many years now. So I'm really, really wondering where they're going to go next with this. What would you guys like to see out of curiosity? Uh, I'm not even sure what I'd like to see, other than, of course, than more info about Malady and more info about the God King. That's, those are the two big things for me. I'm not sure. It'd be nice to see a modern Dragon Knight. That was a really fun game. Uh, I don't actually have much else to add here. I do hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this awesome, awesome game. And I'll be seeing you guys. Whoops, wrong thing. I'll be seeing you guys next time.